Let's take our Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, we will begin in verse 13. Actually, let's back up to verse 12. If you recall from last week and then on Christmas Eve, we were in the story of the wise men, their visit first to Herod, and then their visit to uh, Jesus, the, the young child, where they presented him with their gifts. So this is how that story concludes and then how it moves into the next series of events. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Having come through the Christmas season, I imagine all of us here, at one point or another, whether here or in some other context, venue, heard the classic Christmas stories. When you come to church during December, you expect to hear references to certain stories, right? And if I were to say, list out for me. What are all of the the relevant, pertinent stories and or verses in the Bible that we deal with each and every Christmas season? So undoubtedly, you're going to come up with the stories that we have here in Matthew. We'll talk about the wise men. We'll talk about angels appearing to Joseph and Mary. We'll talk about shepherds tending their flock by night. There'll be uh, a stable and manger in there somewhere. We'll, We'll give that... That, that poor guy who managed the inn a hard time, even though he's never mentioned ever in the Bible, all right? Not once is there ever an innkeeper ever mentioned, but he's like one of the worst people in all of human history, all right? But we do, we do talk about that guy. And then maybe you'd go back a little bit more into, into Luke's gospel. Maybe you'd bring out some of the connection with, with John the Baptist and, and those stories as they prepare for the coming of Christ, and maybe you dabble in some Old Testament prophecy. Right? You talk about the Isaiah 7 passage or 9 passage, a verse we just heard played for us as we saw it on the screen, or maybe Micah chapter 5 referenced here in Matthew chapter 2, and out of Bethlehem will come the ruler. 
Right? These are the stories we associate with Christmas. But would anybody on that list, that list of classic, iconic, go-to Christmas stories, would anybody put on there the Exodus and the Babylonian captivity? If, if that's you, let me know. All right, let me know. After, not right now, okay? But after the service, if you let me know, if you were to come to me and say, yeah, pastor, every year, if there are stories we read at Christmas, we go straight for the book of Exodus. We read about ten plagues. Nothing better than ten plagues at Christmas time. That's one of our favorite stories. We love it. Warm fuzzies. We do our own Exodus nativity scene. All right, we do our own thing. It's not one of our go-to stories. And then the Babylonian captivity. And some of you may hear that and think, that's even a weird thing. What are you, what are you talking about? Well, that, that's what happens kind of at the end of Old Testament history. If, if the beginning of Old Testament history, at least as far as the nation of Israel is concerned, begins in earnest when Moses brings about two million people out of Egypt and into the wilderness and to Mount Sinai to make this great covenant with God... And kind of the end of that Old Testament history is when after centuries they managed to disobey every single command they promised God they would keep. And they did it over and over and over and over again. And God told them over and over and over again, you, I will judge you, there will be consequences for your sin. Nonetheless, they continued in their rebellion. So God is an act of judgment allowed the Babylonians to sweep into Jerusalem. The Assyrians had already done a number on the northern kingdoms. Then comes the Babylonian Empire, in essence, burning Jerusalem to the ground. And on top of that, taking the best and the brightest of Jerusalem, the children, the teenagers, maybe even the young adults, taking all of them back to Babylon to be brainwashed to in essence be used as slaves in the, in the palace of the king. The, these are the two iconic Old Testament stories, though we don't necessarily associate them with Christmas. But Matthew does. Uh, it may sound odd to say that, but in fact, that's exactly what Matthew does. In the text we just read albeit passages that maybe aren't even our go-to passages at Christmas anyway, but for Matthew, in his telling of what we would call the Christmas story, though by this time in chapter 2, as we noted last week, Jesus is already a young child around the two-year-old mark. These are still the birth narratives for Matthew as he is showing us the nature of Christ and how Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophetic material and central to Matthew's quite profound theological work here is to show that both the Exodus events, right? Moses, ten plagues, Charlton Heston, Yul Brenner, all right, all of that, all of that, and the Babylonian captivity, both of these prefigure, symbolize, give us an early foreshadowing of the greater work of Christ to come. So, this this morning, this Sunday that gets kind of, you know, wedged in between the big holiday of Christmas and then a new year to come, 
We're going to take a look then at what Matthew does with these two stories, and they fit right in with his purpose. If you recall, all month long, we've been talking about how Matthew's primary concern here is to demonstrate the kingship of Jesus. Jesus rightly is the fulfillment of the promised Old Testament king. And there are some important features of that kingship. If we go on to the next slide, we've looked at three already. Jesus is a king who reigns. He is a king who saves, and he is a king who shepherds. So again, these these are the first three kind of events, going through the genealogy in chapter 1, the promise made to Joseph from an angel in a dream that you'll name this child Jesus because he will save the people from his sins. And then the text we looked at last Sunday, the prophetic statement coming out of Micah, Bethlehem will be the one out of whom will come this ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This morning I want to look at two more. Two more ways in which Christmas promises as a king, and you can fill in blanks. So if we just go on to the next slide, we'll get two of them right here at the beginning. And you can go ahead and fill in your blanks and then feel good. There's not going to be any more blanks to come, all right? So we'll give you a break. You can go ahead and fill them in now. Christmas promises a king who rescues and a king who restores. Again, looking at these two great stories of Old Testament history, critical stories of Old Testament history, a hopeful beginning and God rescuing His people out of Egypt only to fail time and time again, and then judgment to come in taking the people captive, and though they would return to Jerusalem, Israel would never be kind of her own nation again. At least not until the modern era, Right? And by the time we get to the Christmas story, is Israel in charge of herself? Does she even have a Jewish king who is of the lineage of David? No. No, they're they're under the rule of the Roman Empire and then under a descendant of Esau. Not not even, not only is he not of the lineage of David, he's not even of the lineage of the people of God, the Jewish nation itself. So both of these stories, I think, give us these other two aspects of what it means to talk about the kingship of Jesus. So first, let's talk about then a king who rescues. Go back then to verse 13, keeping in mind the nature of the, of, you know, of the story, what has happened. The wise men have shown up at a house in Bethlehem. The star had rested over top of it. Again, I, I argued, and I still think this is the case, I don't think this star was a natural phenomenon. I don't think it's Jupiter or Saturn or whatever other thing that people want to say it is. I think God created it. I think God caused His glory to shine for two years off and on until these guys show up at the house. When they do, they see the Christ child fall on their faces in worship. They give Him gifts. And what had been their instruction? Herod had been pretty specific. Once you find him, I want you to come back and get me. Because I want to worship him too. A slimier king there had never been before, right? That's the exact opposite of what he wants to do. His one desire, this paranoid, psychotic king, has one desire. As soon as I see this child, I will kill this child. That was his desire. And so, these men, these wise men, are given a dream, and they're warned to go a different direction. 
So as soon as this event is over, and we can assume it's at night, they then make their way back a different way, not going back through Jerusalem, not stopping by Herod's place. And in that same kind of context, as the wise men are going back east, this is what it says about this first family. Now, when they had departed, meaning the wise men, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. So, second time for Joseph to get an angel in a dream. The command is straightforward. Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. By the way, I love how these stories so accentuate the absolute sovereignty of God. I mean, you want to talk about piecing together every part so that God's desired end comes to pass. I mean, that is what is going on here. The absolute sovereignty of God is on display. And and so, Herod is going to go into a psychotic rage. But an angel comes to Joseph and says, Arise. And the language of arise probably is more intense. It means get up, get out right now. Because if you notice what the rest of it says in verse 14, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. So again, if you think in timeline here, all this has happened in the same 24-hour period. Wise men have shown up, they've given the gifts, and in that same night, that very same night, in haste, do they flee. I do want to point out something. I've kind of noted this all along the way. You know, Joseph is never referred to as the father. Joseph is always described in terms of being like this earthly guardian for Jesus. Did you notice how the text worded it? Arise, take the young child and his mother. Notice what he doesn't say. Arise, take your son and your wife. Don't you think that would have been the normal way to say it? Right? I mean, a patriarchal society, arise, take your son, take your wife, go to Egypt. That's not what he says. You take the child, he gets top billing, right? Take the child and his mother. Again, this just reaffirms what I, you know, what I argue is the Bible's clear presentation of the virgin conception, the necessity of, of Jesus being wrought in Mary of the Holy Spirit, And so that's exactly what they do. They arise that night and they flee to Egypt, undoubtedly paying their way with a bounty of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I want to stop here for just a second because there's something I want to do. I hate doing this. I hate having to correct people when they get their theology wrong. It's not really true. You're thinking, what, really? No, I think you love it, don't you? You kind of live for it, I think. So, what I am about to say, (laughs) you love that, don't you? What I'm about to say, oh, we lean in now, all right. What I'm about to say is not, in any way, political commentary, all right? Not that I'm against political commentary. You ask me. I can tell you everything you should think about politics. All right? Okay? Everything you should think. I can tell you. Just let me know. I'll tell you. It's not what this is. However, when politicians 
and unfortunately some evangelical leaders badly and ignorantly refer to the Bible. You've wandered into my house now, all right? Understand this very clearly. Again, the only, I'm not saying anything about immigration, okay? <clears throat> Jesus, Joseph, and Mary were not illegal immigrants in Egypt, all right? I say that because this is what you hear, right? I've heard all kinds. You hear this every Christmas, but it's really been energetic this year. Oh, Jesus was an illegal immigrant. He was not. You say, well, pastor, he went to Egypt. Right. He went to Egypt. Who's in charge of Egypt? The Romans. Do you think the Romans thought Jerusalem and Alexandria were different areas? No. They're all the Roman Empire. Jesus was no more an illegal immigrant in Egypt than I was an illegal immigrant in South Carolina for Christmas, all right? This is called interstate travel. By the way, when Jesus and the family got there, do you know there were some three million Jews already living there? This was a well-known haven. Because the Jerusalem-Israel era area was a hotbed of persecution, it, it tended to be a battleground between northern and southern territories. So it was not uncommon over centuries for Jews to take refuge in the region of Egypt that Jesus went to. So I, I just want to make sure we understand biblically. The Bible never says this. This is called the fallacy of anachronism. I know it's big and fancy. That just means you're going to read a new term into an old text, and it almost always will lead to heresy. It'll almost always lead to that. When, when he says this, when, when, when Matthew then says, this was done, verse, verse 15, <clears throat> that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I've called my son. He's not saying anything about immigration. They wouldn't have even thought in those terms. Again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying one way or another, all right? Though I have ideas. But that's not what the text is talking about. We're going to stick with what it's talking about. What is Matthew's concern? It is to show that there is an Old Testament image. And he uses the phrase that it might be fulfilled. Hosea gives this quote. This is from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. If you were to go and read that, you wouldn't read that and necessarily think, oh, this is obviously a prophecy about Jesus. Instead, what it means to say it is the fulfillment of this, this is Matthew's way of saying the event that is described by Hosea, looking back on the Exodus events, really what he's saying is Jesus fulfills the type that is the Exodus event. Exodus, that, that whole thing, the ten plagues, uh, the coming out of Egypt, and then everything associated with it. The, the covenant at Mount Sinai, the establishment of the sacrificial system, uh, the, the festivals, Passover, atonement. The, these things were all signifying something greater to come. That's what Matthew's doing here. If you were to go and read Hosea 11, 
you'll find it is God himself speaking to Israel, obviously centuries after the Exodus event, telling them, I've loved you. I provided for you. I I called you as my son out of Egypt. And what did you do? You worshipped idols. I met every single one of your needs. I cared for you. I cared for you like a, a mother cares for an infant. But at every turn, you turned on me. So Matthew takes this, recognizing, again, he's under the inspiration of the Spirit, recognizing that what, what is going on here now with the birth of Christ, Jesus now becomes what Israel should have been. Israel should have been the faithful Son of God, coming out of Egypt, coming out of the world, living in fellowship with God, under the blessings of the covenant, but instead she did the opposite. And now, Matthew is saying, now we have a king who is coming, who has now been born, who is the fulfillment of this prophecy, and literally, Matthew is saying, I see an analogy here, just as God sent Jesus, his family to Egypt, and called them back out, and he'll come back then to Nazareth. That, that is a fulfillment of what is prefigured in the fact that Jacob and his family also fled to Egypt trying to get out of a drought. And while there, find themselves enslaved. And while there, find themselves crying out to God for a Redeemer. And while there, God sending Moses who would then be the one to lead the nation out. All of this was prefiguring what was going to be the better work of the better Messiah, of the better King, of the better Moses. So Matthew takes us all the way back, and and, and just one little sentence here takes all of that Old Testament history, wraps it up for us and says, in essence, the birth of Jesus is a fulfillment of what was prefigured in all of that Exodus event. Again, what, what, what is fundamentally at stake then in all of that? Well, it is, it is the rescue of his people out of sin, out of darkness, out of the world, and into fellowship with God. Again, the Jews failed at this. In fact, while Moses is on top of the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, getting the rest of the commandments laid out, the rest of the law laid out while he's up there for that 40 days. In the midst of that, they're building a golden calf. I've said this before, I don't think there's ever been a generation on the, on the planet, ever. There's never been anybody who has ever seen more of a display of God's power and glory than the Egyptians and the Jews in the book of Exodus. That Jewish nation saw God do things that you and I, we're resigned to watch them on the big screen, right? And yet, what do they do? Weeks out of being rescued out of Egypt, 
They're, they're throwing gold in a fire and saying that a cow jumps out, right? So what is it that we need? Well, we need, we need a better Savior. We need one better than Moses. We, we need a better Israel. We need a better Son of God. And so that's what Matthew is promising us here. This is the promise of the Christmas story, that in Jesus is the King who would rescue. One other story. Number three, or two, which I guess is number five. Anyway, all right. A king who restores. So now Matthew takes us to the other end of Old Testament history. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. Again, that that phrase, exceedingly angry, that, that means... That would be like a psychotic rage. This this isn't a premeditated response. This isn't cold and calculated revenge. This is what what you do when, when you are deeply offended and you react in the moment. It is it is out of control rage. The good news is that you and I, when we experience that, don't have the resources that Herod had. So what is it that Herod does when he was exceedingly angry? He sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Now, this is not countrywide. It's not in Jerusalem. In fact, there are some critics of the Bible who will point to this story and say, See, that's evidence the Bible isn't always true because we don't have any record of Herod doing this. There's no no story out there among ancient historians of Herod killing all of these baby boys. Now, it's not to say that it was not awful and atrocious. It was. But one estimate I read suggested it was probably about 20 or 30. Now, the reason why I say that is just to, again, verify our confidence in the Bible Herod, Herod killed two of his own wives, a brother-in-law, three sons, some kids from a know-nothing hick town like Bethlehem? No, that's, that's not going to register on, on the historical timeline, all right? The only reason we know about it is because it's in the Bible. It's, it's not going to matter. They probably lost 20 children a day anyway. In other words, this this would not have been newsworthy necessarily. However, for Matthew and the prophetic means of pointing us to Christ, this is a fulfillment of something. So he says it in verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. The Old Testament background here is that Babylonian captivity. After the Babylonians came in and in essence burned the city to the ground, desecrated the temple, again, it had happened more than once. They said the, the violence perpetrated against Israel is it's not even appropriate to talk about it in mixed company. The, the violence was unbelievable. 
And so not, not only was there great death, but then imagine soldiers ripping children from your arms. And you'll never see them again. That's what happened. There's a famous one. Daniel. Remember Daniel, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are the Babylonian names, by the way. These are some of those very same young men, perhaps even 13, 14, 15 when they were taken. And they're taken back to Babylon. Daniel dies in Babylon. Daniel never sees Jerusalem again. So, So this is what Jeremiah is referring to. It comes in chapter 31. As Jeremiah is looking back on this event, it has already occurred, and he is, he is, he is saying that this, this has, has created weeping among the children, you know, among Rachel, Rachel being, you know, the, the, the figurehead, so to speak, of the mother of Israel. Rachel's weeping for her children that have been taken from her. Jeremiah sees in this something prophetic. He sees, he sees in, in this, and Matthew then points us to what is the, is the greater fulfillment. Here's what you've got to know, though. If you were to go back and read Jeremiah, which I'm sure all of you will do as soon as you get home, right? Yeah, we've got to go back and read Jeremiah. It's a Christmas story after all, right? Okay, Jeremiah, chapters 30 through 33. These chapters are great chapters, believe it or not. They are chapters full of hope and promise. These are chapters where Jeremiah, God, through Jeremiah, is telling Israel, yes, you are under the thumb of God's judgment. Yes, the enemies have come in. They've destroyed the city. They have taken your children. But God is not done with you yet. There's a greater day to come. There's a day when Israel will be restored, when the temple will be rebuilt. In these chapters, Jeremiah tells those who are left those who are, who are left behind in Jerusalem, he tells them the day is coming when, when the Messiah will come and he will usher in a forever kingdom. He'll be a forever king. Righteousness and peace will pervade throughout all of the earth. These were the promises that he was given. In fact, right after this very verse that he quotes, Jeremiah, the, the rest of that verse that's there in verse 18, the rest of it says this, Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. In other words, the chapter that Matthew quotes from is a chapter traditionally that every Jew hearing it would have known resonated with the promise of the new covenant. The promise that God had made one day, I will shepherd you, Israel. I will come. It will be Emmanuel. It will be God with you. You will be my people. I will be your God. It will be a a kingdom of peace and prosperity. There is that day coming. This is the nature of chapters 30 through 33. And in fact, chapter 33 then ends with Jeremiah saying, From the branch of Jesse will spring one, a branch will spring forth and will produce a king of righteousness. A king who would restore all that had been lost. What's interesting is Matthew draws attention 
to the weeping. But I think his intention is to draw our attention to the promise. I think every Jew would have known that. And so while this sounds like a weird little way to talk about it, what what Matthew is in essence saying, this is the one, this is the fulfillment of the promise. Just as Jesus' birth fulfills, brings to completion, brings to a greater understanding all that happened in Exodus, coming out of Egypt, Mount Sinai, the making of a covenant, the promise of atonement, the means of forgiveness, just as Jesus pre you know, is the one who fulfills that which was prefigured. So Jesus is the one who will restore the kingdom back. The one who will bring an everlasting righteousness. Who will bring peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Again, we don't necessarily think of these stories in those terms, but I think that is exactly what he is talking about. I think, I think Herod's slaughter of these children was a demonstration of what was a greater promise to come. I know that sounds strange, right? Sounds like a strange way to bring out a promise. Seems like a really disturbing way to do so. I think this is just Matthew's way of saying, Israel, this is not the first time somebody over you has done something wicked to your children. In fact, it goes all the way back to Egypt, right? It's not the first king to try and kill the children. I'm sure the Babylonians considered killing the children. They just thought, no, I'd rather make them our slaves. That'd be a much better deal, right? Free slavery. Let's do that. It's not the first time Israel had been under the thumb of a wicked king who did something wicked to their children. So Matthew's words here then remind us it is in this context that there was a child who was born, just as there was Moses who was born and hid from the violence of Pharaoh, so there is now a better Moses. A better Moses who also was saved from the rage of a pagan king in order to bring about the greater fulfillment of a promise that was made. Now, one thing we've got to recognize, though, in this very promise itself are yet unresolved promises. Meaning, do we really live in a world that's dominated by peace? Anyone want to venture that as an argument? Yeah. world is as peaceful as it's ever been. Anybody want to say that? Anybody up up for that? No? Probably not? Yeah, so so what is the saying then? I think this is then pointing us to the future. I know this sounds strange. You You come to a sermon... Uh, about, you know, during the Christmas season, looking maybe for some Christmas stories, and instead, what are we ending with? The second coming. The second coming. There's no way you get out of Matthew chapter 2 without it. You don't get out of Jeremiah chapter 31 without it. The only explanation to all of this is to know that one day this same child who was born, this child who was born in a manger to a bunch of nobody parents, visited by some nobody shepherds, worshipped by pagan religious leaders, tried to be slaughtered by, in essence, a pagan king, this same child who was born for one purpose, and that was to die on a cross and be raised from the dead, this same child is coming again. 
And I'm telling you, church, when he comes again, it won't be in a manger. There won't be shepherds watching their flock at night. Instead, he will burst through that eastern sky on a horse. He will slay all of his enemies with nothing but the words coming from his very mouth. And he will establish a forever kingdom. He will be a forever king. There will be forever peace. And you and I will forever be the children of God. So, when you think about Christmas, this is what you should think about. This is much more profound than I think what we often give it credit for. Thank you, Matthew. Matthew's an astute theologian, an astute student of the Old Testament, and reminds us of what are these great promises of this king to come. So now there's a question then left to us. You know, when I hear all this, here's what I was drawn to. This should have an impact on my own heart and mind. It should, it should say to me in no uncertain terms, Jesus is, should be, sufficient for me. I'm drawn to the sufficiency of Christ in seeing this portrait that Matthew has painted for us. And, and looking toward a new year and looking back on the last one, I see how easy it is for me to not depend on the sufficiency of Christ in so many ways. Is Jesus the one I love, serve, adore, obey? Am I satisfied with Him? Is this Savior as my Redeemer? Is He truly all that I want and need? I I think that's at least part of the end game here. So for those who are here today, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, this is the plea I make to you. One day this young child... We'll come back. You will bow to Him. Every person on this planet will bow to Him. If you bow now, glorious salvation. If you wait until then, eternal condemnation. Those are serious consequences. So I implore you, if you do not know Christ as your Savior, trust in Him and Him alone. Confess that you are a sinner. Confess Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Ask God to save you based on what Christ has done and you can be saved. If you want to know more about that, I'll be down front. I would love to tell you more. If you'd say, no, I am a believer, then I would ask you, is He a sufficient Savior for you? Is is He all you want and need? Is He indeed your King? If not, what a a great time then to think about that very carefully as we enter into a new year. Think about 2019, an opportunity then to, to, to go into it, full surrender to our great King. Let's stand together and I'll pray. And after I pray, we will sing about this Redeemer. Father God, we do thank you. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that are in it. We thank you for this season. For again, drawing us unto what are the great promises of the birth of Christ and how that, how that then drives us to the realities of the cross and the resurrection and then how that moves us even further to the day to come when Christ will return. Father, I pray that then in our own hearts and minds we would find ourselves like the wise men on our faces before our great King. Have your way in us and be glorified through us. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.